Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to season two of Novel Dialogue, a literary podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm Arthi Vade. My co-host is John Plotz. We'll be taking turns hosting episodes throughout the season. In Novel Dialogue, we bring critics and novelists together to talk about novels from every angle, how we read, write, publish, and remember them. And today we are partnering with the Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke University to bring you a dialogue between acclaimed novelist Kamala Shamsi and distinguished critic Anki Mukherjee. Kamala is the author of seven novels, including In the City by the Sea, Burnt Shadows, and most recently Home Fire, which was long listed for the Booker Prize and won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018. Home Fire is a brilliant adaptation of Sophocles' Antigone, centered on a Muslim family in modern-day England. I really could not put this novel down. Uh, it was thrilling, a heartbreaking love story woven around political theory. Uh, I found myself thinking about state power, the weaponization of statelessness, and the racialization of British identity, and how they drove this really modern take on a tragic plot. So Kamala, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. And Anki Mukherjee is a perfect interlocutor for Kamala, and I realize they have been in conversation for a while now before this show, so I'm happy to just be coming in in media race. Uh, she is a professor of English at Oxford and the author of a fantastic monograph called What is a Classic? Postcolonial Rewriting and the Invention of the Canon. She's also published a highly illuminating article on the suffering of Antigone, which reads Home Fire in light of interpretive debates about the classic play. Anki is currently working on a book about psychoanalysis called The Psychic Life of Power. So Anki, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you again for coming. Thank you very much, Aarti. Uh, so I am thrilled to uh, join you guys, and I will now pass the virtual mic to you, Anki. Uh, thank you again, Aarti, and uh, a very warm welcome again to, to Kamila. Um, I was wondering, Camilla, if you could please uh, read a short excerpt of um, uh, from one of your recent novels to get us started, because in a way, that is the ground on which critic and author and host converge. Um, thank you, Anki. It's happy to do that. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning of Home Fire. Um, and since it's a start of a novel, I don't have to set anything up, which is one of the benefits of this section. Um, though the only thing it's important to know, I think, is that this is a British citizen in a British airport, in a London airport. Isma was going to miss her flight. The ticket wouldn't be refunded because the airline took no responsibility for passengers who arrived at the airport three hours ahead of the departure time 
and were escorted to an interrogation room. She had expected the interrogation, but not the nerve-wracking hours of waiting that would precede it, or that it would feel so humiliating to have the contents of her suitcase inspected. She'd made sure not to pack anything that would invite comment or questions. No Quran, no family pictures, no books on her area of academic interest. But even so, the officer took hold of every item of Isma's clothing and ran it between her thumb and fingers, not so much searching for hidden pockets as judging the quality of the material. Finally, she reached for the designer label down jacket that Isma had folded over a chair back when she entered and held it up, one hand pinching each shoulder. This isn't yours, she said. And Isma was sure she didn't mean because it's at least a size too large, but rather it's too nice for someone like you. I used to work at a dry cleaning shop. The woman who brought this in said she didn't want it when we couldn't get rid of the stain. She pointed to the grease mark on the pocket. Does the manager know you took it? I was the manager. You were the manager of a dry cleaning shop, and now you're on your way to a PhD program for sociology in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yes. And how did that happen? My siblings and I were orphaned just after I finished uni. They were 12 years old, twins. I took the first job I could find. Now they've grown up, I can go back to my life. You're going back to your life in Amherst, Massachusetts. I meant the academic life. The woman dropped the jacket into the messy jumble of clothes and shoes and told Isma to wait. That had been a while ago. The plane would be boarding now. Isma looked over at the suitcase. She'd repacked when the woman left the room and spent the time since worrying if doing that without permission constituted an offence. Should she empty the clothes out into a haphazard pile, or would that make things even worse? She stood up, unzipped the suitcase and flipped it open so its contents were visible. A man entered the office carrying Isma's passport, laptop and phone. She allowed herself to hope, but he sat down, gestured for her to do the same, and placed a recorder between them. Do you consider yourself British? The man said. I am British. But do you consider yourself British? I've lived here all my life. She meant there was no other country of which she could feel herself apart. But the words came out sounding evasive. I think I'll stop there. And this is chilling to listen to, actually. You know, the events of the last week in Afghanistan have jolted us back to 2001, a little ahead of the 20th anniversary, um, the trauma of 9-11, of course, and the subsequent US war on terror, with its wholesale carnage, 800,000 dead, and the displacement of populations, some 27 million. This opening of your novel Home Fire captures a dimension of statist violence that Muslims in particular and brown-skinned people in general have come to accept as normal and everyday at various checkpoints of the West since that September day 20 years ago. Could you say a little more about the figure of the terrorist as woman, something that Home Fire prepares us from the start, from this scene, and then, of course, with its classic extrapolations of Antigone. 
Well, rather than the figure of terrorist as woman, I, I think in terms of um, the figure under suspicion as woman, um, you know, which I think is, um, to me, I mean, a lot of people talk about that chilling opening scene and, and the chilling part is the interrogation. But to me, the real chilling part is that she's prepared for it. That Isma, as a British citizen, who is simply going on her way to get, go to university degrees, knowingly arrives three hours early because she thinks, of course, this is going to happen to me. And as the story we progresses, we learn their particular family reasons for her thinking so. Um, but it's still not an unexpected position for her to be in. Um, the, the woman as Muslim terrorist is, I think, um, a curious figure because actually the women were largely cast in roles of victims. Um, and again, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Afghanistan there, Anki, because of course we all saw that when the occupation of Afghanistan happened, and, and I was remembered very remembered very starkly going on a demo in London against that against that invasion when it was first happening, and how small the numbers were of those of us who were marching as compared to the Iraq war. You know, and there was really this belief that largely this was a just war and a lot of the justice around it was was cast in terms of the liberation of women. Um, and of course, we had Joe Biden just the other day saying, look, this was never a nation building exercise. This was um, a counterterrorism exercise, um, which is possibly the most honest thing a US president has said about the whole war since it started. Um, but but the Muslim woman was sort of this figure of uh, victimhood and needing to be saved. Um, and so we were in this curious position, those of us who are Muslim women in those ages, that you would go to airports and, and you'd see Muslim men being, you know, forced to undergo certain sort of processes. Um, and as Muslim women, you were largely waved through, not always, um, but largely waved through. And yet there was always this awareness that you were seen as suspect. You know, you were, and if you didn't fall into the, the category of the, oppressed, then there was, some, you know, maybe you weren't really Muslim or something. Um, it was a very strange sort of position to be in in those years right after 9-11. And the number of people who would say to me, oh, but you're not Muslim, Muslim. You're not really Muslim. But without knowing me, sort of, you know, seconds into a conversation, um, I suppose on the basis of the fact that I, you know, wasn't wearing a hijab or not looking suitably victimized or something or the other. Um, and so I wanted I did want this also to center on women who are not necessarily experiencing the worst of the Islamophobia um, and yet are so aware of it and have internalized the ways in which the world sees them and the ways in which the world see the communities they're from and their brothers and their cousins um, and their neighbors. You triangulate these sort of configurations of terrorists and configurations of Islamic women with, of course, configurations of the citizen subject, mm. you know, uh, of whom you are one, you know, and you are you are sort of in a way bringing these ideas of common good and civic liberties and letting women embody them and articulate them. I wonder sometimes, Camilla, when you were talking about going to a demo, you know, and having to think on your feet and having to even write on the move, mm. is it sometimes tiring, you think, for people like you and me to constantly have to write to the moment, you know, that, you know, we can't always write about abstract things and something meta when such 
dire identity questions besiege you know our mental life i think um we have to always always insist upon our right to um write about the things that are pressing on us which may be abstract questions i mean you know um before home fire i had written a book called a garden every stone which is set 100 years ago and yes there are always overlaps and echoes to do with history and my interest in that novel started with with contemporary questions uh, but you know i wasn't going to take the view that if i'm writing about peshawar which is a city on the border of afghanistan and pakistan i have to write about the war on terror and al qaeda and american occupation and drone strikes um, that i can write instead about archaeology i can write about a non-violent um, anti-imperial movement of the early 20th century um, and i think it's taken me time to to get that position i mean post 9/11 you know i was 28 when 9/11 happened um, and there was this moment when the world was looking for muslim voices um, and i very quickly found myself i was writing for the guardian i was appearing on newsnight which as you and i know is sort of one of the big um, discussion programs on uk tv and i was sitting there next to you know very high ranking members of the us administration um and there came a moment where i realized i could become a professional muslim you know um, and i think i realized at the moment someone asked me to comment on something happening i don't know where it was somalia i think and i said what do i know about and it was just that there were muslims involved so you know um and i started to refuse a lot of things and i think it's very important to know when to refuse things and not to give in to people saying oh but we need your voice in this because very often the people saying we need your voice in this um are actually just saying oh god we need a muslim woman where's one oh that one's visible i saw her last week um and actually to resist that um i mean we're seeing a lot of it now in a different way around the worst form of of diversity um talk that's happening which is not about kind of deepening and looking around and interrogating your own ways of thinking but just to say where's the nearest black person or brown person let's them add them to the panel oh we've already got one we don't need another um but also i think if you're writing a novel it's a very different kind of space you know i mean home fire yes was dealing with contemporary events um but largely a novel knows that it's going to take time to write it's going to take time to publish and that it hopes to linger in the world for a very long time so it can't be this sort of i'm responding to what's happening today um but the other part of it is in order for a novel to come out of you it has to be about something that is lodged very deep inside um and i remember reading a, an interview with john hersey of course most famous as the journalist who went to hiroshima and wrote what became a complete new yorker um issue and then later its own book about what had happened in hiroshima but hersey thought of himself primarily as a fiction writer and he was also a novelist who won the pulitzer prize for fiction um and he said something very interesting about how journalism can come from things that are sort of you know of surface interest to you but that the novel comes from a, a much deeper space um and i think those deeper spaces require you to have been thinking about something and worrying about something for a 
quite a long space of time. Um, and that just means that novel's relationship to time is very different to, you know, that of something occurring in the moment. In a very early interview, V.S. Naipaul said, you have to become adept in looking for the truth of your own responses. I mean, he's here describing his own transition from a derivative reviewer of literary works for the New Statesman to an author persona that was his invention, not merely a cultural inheritance. Mm -hmm. Do you have any epiphanies to share about your wish to become a writer and the hard graft of actualizing that wish? Um, well, first of all, I think, um, unlike Naipaul, I, I, I completely discount the idea of the individual creating themselves, you know, rather than being a product of culture and place and class and society and gender and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, there is this sort of the writer who springs fully formed from the forehead of other books or whatever it is, um, isn't, isn't one that, that strikes any kind of chord with me. Um, I think when you start doing something as early as I did, you just, there is um, a sort of pleasure and a joy you take in it. I mean, literally, I've been doing this since I was 11. It was a thing I did for fun. Um, it was a thing I did. I mean, admittedly, you know, I was growing up in the Zia years in Pakistan. It was very boring. And there was only one state TV channel. So you had to either read, as far as I was concerned, I could be reading or I could be writing. And these were, these were my forms of uh, pleasure. Um, and I try to keep hold of that still when I write. Um, I suppose if I had any form of epiphany, it was that you should never tell yourself the kind of writer you are. Um, with my first few novels, I'd always say, you know, I'm someone who writes about Karachi, I write about the world, I grew up in the world I knew intimately. Um, and I will always be that writer. You can't ever say I will always be that writer. You can only say this is the writer I was yesterday. You don't even necessarily know who you are today because you're too busy being it. Um, and that actually, if you free, if you just say, I don't know, I don't know what's coming down the pipeline. I don't know who I'm going to be as a writer tomorrow, what's coming out. Um, it, it frees you to consider anything, um, which can also then be terrifying. Let's go back to the beginning, to your mm -hmm. reading of Homefire, and talk about the two novels that came before Homefire, namely Burnt Shadows and A God in Every Stone. For me, for this reader, and I have read a lot of, I've read, I think, five of your seven novels, mm -hmm. these, these three novels blast open the geography of precursor works, such as cartography and broken verses. So in God in Every Stone, you read three crumbling empires, you know, Persian, Ottoman, and British, like a memory palimpsest, while Burnt Shadows shows us the through lines between Nagasaki, 1945, and Guantanamo, post 9-11. Do these three novels, and I'm including Homefire, mark a turning point in your vision or craft? I think Burnt Shadows very much was um, a moment where I became a different writer. Um, and again, these things, you know, for me, as I said earlier, a, a lot to do, it, I, I plan very little in terms of writing. Um, so the first four novels were all set in Karachi and they, 
not just Karachi, but sort of within a sort of two square mile area that I knew intimately and had grown up and with the kinds of people I grew up with. Um, and in some ways, Burnt Shadows was going to be the same thing. And Burnt Shadows, originally the idea was it was to be about a man in Karachi in 1998, the summer that India and Pakistan tested their nuclear bombs. Um, and his grandmother had been Japanese, so he had a sort of different sense and had been a survivor of Nagasaki. So he had a very different sense of that moment to other people. That was the original idea. Um, but what had happened was I'd written four novels back to back. And at the end of the fourth one, Broken Verses, I was tired in a way I hadn't been before. And I just thought I need to take six months off because usually I'd go from one novel right into the other. And I think when you do that, actually, the residue of one carries through in the novel or the ways you have of thinking about fiction and what you're writing about carries through. So I had never really given myself a break to allow the previous novels to sort of exit the bloodstream. Um, and that three month or six month break became, I think, an 18 month break. And in it, I was again, judging for a prize. And I found myself getting really annoyed by, by what I saw is this repeating structure, which is that there's someone in the present day living their lives, and then something happens that sort of activates the past or a past memory, and they have to confront that. And I found myself getting very, very annoyed by this. And I thought, why are all these books doing it? And then I realized the reason I was getting annoyed was because I had been doing that in my novels, and I was planning to do it again. You know, I had done it the broken verses where there's this figure, Asmani Inkalab, and her mother's story sort of, you know, butts into her life. I had done it in cartography where um, there are kids in the 1990s and the 1970 war sort of asserts itself in their in their consciousness in a certain way. And I was going to do it again with, you know, the story of 1998, which goes back to the bombing of Nagasaki. And I just realized I've fallen into these patterns and it's just because I keep doing it this way, I you know, haven't stopped to, to think about it. And then I found myself thinking, who is this grandmother in Nagasaki? Why does this boy, in, this young man in Pakistan have a grandmother from Nagasaki? How did she end up in Pakistan if she did? Um, and my first thought was, obviously, I can't write her story. I mean, I write about Karachi. How can I write about a Japanese woman in Nagasaki in 1945? Um, and, and of course, in addition to everything else, there, there's the concerns that here is this this event, this extraordinary event, you know, if you're going to write about the Bangu Nagasaki, you have to do it properly, you have to honor it in some way. Um, and also, who am I? What do I know about a Japanese woman in 1945? But I was teaching at the time. And one of the things I always tell my students is, if you want to write something, and it terrifies you, try to do it. So I really fooled myself to write that book because I thought, look, I keep saying this to my students, I, I can't go and look at them in the eye in a classroom if I don't at least try to write the story of the woman in Nagasaki in 1945. And of course, my plan was I will completely fail, but at least I'll have tried and then I can go back to Karachi 1998 and do it differently. Um, and of course, I did fail, but failing made me want to try another draft and do it better and do it better and figure out how you in Colin McCann's words, don't write what you know, but write towards what you want to know. I'm a reader and I'm also a literary critic whose enjoyment of the work does not preclude contextualizing, comparing, analyzing, reading for form and style. 
what is your relationship to that kind of work that a reader such as me is also doing with your novels? You know, do you think critics have overlooked this or that when it comes to your work? Um, to say that I think critics have overlooked something would imply that that I have fixed sense of what critics should be looking at. You know, I remember a moment when I was listening to the wonderful uh, Libyan British American writer um, Hisham Matar talking about his work, and the the interlocutor said to him some some sentence which started with the word. So, when you were writing, were you thinking? And Hisham said, "When I write, I try not to think." And everyone thought he was making a joke, except the writers in the room who knew exactly what he meant, which wasn't, of course, that he wasn't thinking, but that um, there is that kind of analytical brain or critic's brain that is, you know, looking at the writing and seeing it in a particular way is not the writer brain. Um, the writer brain is literally thinking, how do I get from this sentence to the next? And of course, there is this is not to say that all the stuff that you critics pick up on isn't there, but so much of it is and has to be back of the brain stuff, which is to say you aren't consciously aware of all the connections you are making, which of course you're making. Um, and sometimes I'll be surprised by a critic telling me that there's a certain image that keeps recurring in the novel and I wouldn't have known, but of course I knew. I mean, it's not accidental that a certain kind of image grows and develops, it's just that that was back of the brain stuff. So, um, you know, I view critics with, with great interest. Obviously, sometimes <laughs> someone will have a reading of your work and you'll feel a little bit depressed by it if a sort of reactionary reading comes in. Um, and I remember when Home Fire came out, there was a review, which was a very positive review in as much as the person liked the book as well. But, um, but their takeaway from it was, you know, how did we ever believe multiculturalism would work? And I thought, really? I mean, this is what you got from the book. Uh, you know, so there are times when you can be sort of disquieted. There are times when you can feel um, a little bit annoyed if someone has misread something by which, or misunderstood by which I mean, I, I'm not talking about their interpretation of facts, I'm talking about the fact that, as would say, burnt shadows, um, you have a young man in the 80s who wants to go and join the Afghan Mujahideen, and, and there were readers, and this was particularly, I have to say, in America, who thought the Mujahideen were the Taliban and made their, you know, decisions about what kind of person would join the Taliban, where actually the Mujahideen of the 1980s were, you know, fighting the Soviets and were a very varied group of people with different relationships to things like religion, let's say. Um, so you can get annoyed by that sort of thing, but, but I'm just sort of intrigued and, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. And sometimes I think this person thinks I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> um, I have to ask a question about audience yeah. based on mm -hmm. the, the, it sounds like the smattering of reviews you've read. And as a pa Pakistani novelist, but also mm -hmm. as a novelist with a global audience, do you find that it's particularly around those novels that um, deal with Muslim identity or with the history of militant organizations that you are read profoundly differently in, say, the, in Britain, in the US versus, say, Pakistan? Um, I think with all the books, I'm, I'm read quite differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, and it's not necessarily around those subjects. I mean, with, with The Garden Every Stone, the first part of the novel centers around an English woman archaeologist, and the, the latter parts of the novel um, have more to do with um, a man from Peshawar who becomes an anti-imperial um, activist. 
Um, and the English reviewers were much more interested in the English women. <laughs> the Indian and Pakistani reviewers were. But, but actually, the, oh, the, the smartest reviews of that book came from India and Pakistan because there was such an understanding of the different levels of, of history um, that it was sort of working with. Um, but yes, there are, there are, of course, different readings. Um, and, you know, with, with Home Fire, um, at the center, literally the center, I mean, the middle part of the novel is a story of Pervez, who is this young British man who, who goes to Syria to join ISIS. Um, and for a long time, actually, his story wasn't going to be in there at all, because it was really the story of how the state responded and the impact that has on his sisters. Um, and what and how his actions and the actions of the state have an impact on his sisters and what they do. Um, and then for various reasons, as I was reading, I became interested in his story simply because I realized I had such a crass understanding of the kind of recruitment tactics these groups used to draw young men. And actually, it was a far more interesting, complex, nuanced, and therefore terrifying story than I had assumed. And so I wanted to put it in there. Um, but what happened as a result for a lot of people that sort of becomes the central story right. you know that that it's talked of a, a story about a boy who goes to who becomes radicalized which was never the one line i wanted about that book and you realize that there are certain stories that just so weigh so heavenly on people's consciousness in the news that if you drop it in that will for them become you know which is why um Arthi, I was so delighted by the way you introduced it actually the way you talk about home fires being about the state and being about islamophobia and what it's you know racist societies and what it is to grow up in there um which is the book i had wanted to write but for mm -hmm. a lot of readers um and i would say particularly white readers it became oh here's a story of the young man who was radicalized and went to join isis right i mean i when i read that um uh, strand of the narrative i have to say i had never encountered such a humanized tale mm. so deeply grounded in the loss of a father and the manipulation of a boy who's lost his father. Mm. And I could see certainly a more conservative reading, not even taking in the story, but actually taking in what they think is an apology and just taking it as an apology, mm -hmm. which which is why I you know, find it commendable and also scary to take on a topic like that as a novelist, because it's such a, a lightning rod for preconceived interpretations. Yeah. Um, but, but just to ask one more question, um, mm -hmm. you mentioned that the more critical analytical uh, takes on the novel are really back of the brain stuff. And when you're working on the novel, those can't be in the forefront. Mm -hmm. But with adaptation and um, with taking on Antigone as you do, I mean, to me, once you know it is an adaptation, it's almost, and I'm going to draw maybe an overly canonical reference, but it's almost like T.S. Eliot on Ulysses saying there is an invisible structure, and once you know it, it explains a lot. And so how do you keep that invisible structure in the back of your brain? Or does it come into the front of your brain, say, in subsequent drafts? Or is it just part of the molecular body of the novel in a kind of organic way? Uh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about in, in that language of the molecular part of the novel, uh, you know, and so the body of the novel, because um, when I talk about it, I say it's not so much, Antigone isn't so much the skeleton of home fire, but it's the marrow in the mm -hmm. bones. 
um, mm. which is how I think of it. So when it was a concern for me, when I started to think, okay, I'm going to write this novel, which is an adaptation of Antigone, I knew that the novel had to absolutely stand on its own. It had to work for people who didn't know Antigone at all, but it also had to work for people who knew Antigone and, and didn't see any need to reread my take on Antigone when there's Sophocles' take on Antigone. Um, and so the way I went about it was I read several different versions of Antigone. And then I put them aside and I thought, I'm not going to look at these again, because now I'm going to work on the novel. And that I was sort of relying on, okay, now the, the, the play itself is back of the brain stuff. Um, and I know my characters and I know certain strands, but I had really assumed that the novel would depart much further than it did um, mm -hmm. from the story of Antigone, or that I would discard a lot more than I did. Um, and yet, as I went on, and it's possibly because of, you know, in that way that Elliot talks about it, because it's so, once you have it, it's just there. It's so deep um, that everything else is sort of forming and shaping around it. Um, and so much more of the play ended up um, in the novel than I thought. And it was interesting because there have been some classicists who've reviewed and written about it. Um, and they found connections that I didn't even think about. And it's sort of small things like sort of in Antigone, we know that the, the siblings are the children of Oedipus and Jocasta, so they are the children of incest, which is a thing I completely put out of my head. I thought that I'm definitely not using. And yet there's a moment where Isma, who's much older than the twins, says of her sister Anika, she's my sister, almost my child. And someone said, oh, look, there's the, the incest thing. And I thought, I hadn't even thought of it, but of course. I think one of the things that's come up in both your response, Arthi, and Kamila's discussion of, you know, what constitutes the work of writing the novel and the kind of more analytical work of writing criticism of the novel is that, you know, of course, you know, as you said, this 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 kind of a work which is based on your multiple readings of Antigone is in many ways interpretive, you know, it is in many ways sort of, you know, deeply historical. And of course, the best kinds of, you know, flights of criticism are flights, they're imaginative, and they are very visceral, they're very mm -hmm. embodied, you know, we can, I can say, I'm going to write on a bunch of Pakistani novelists alongside, you know, post-colonial theory. But what I like about that novel is, you know, what Jacques Lacan says about the objet of desire, that I don't know what it is I like about that voice. Mm. I like that voice. I don't know what it is, you know, that that missing object. And I do think that best kinds of collaborations happen when these two visceral worlds collide, you know, between the author and the and the critic. Because, you know, when I read Home Fire, what I picked up on was that quest for understanding Antigone's meaning, that we understand why she did it from a very statist citizen subject point of view. We don't understand the structure of her suffering. We don't understand the structure of her love. You know, did she do it for love? Whose love? Love of a brother, you know, uh, love of family, love of ideals. So, you know, I I was reading you not with your um, your kind of, you know, contemporaries from the Anglophone world, but I was reading you with Heaney and with Nussbaum and with mm. Steiner, you mm. know, I was reading you alongside those quests for Antigone's meaning. And that I think, you know, is kind of a very interesting way in which the 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 critic as artist and the artist as critic, you know, can kind of come together. But I wondered, Camilla, if you're if you, if you find, you know, certain categorizations that critics also do, let's say feminist or post-colonial or historical, if you find those limiting or 
is there any one kind of category or classification that you're more comfortable with than others? I think I would mind if I was only ever talked about as being in one category. So if I was going to always be the Muslim writer, that would be very tedious. What I found interesting is the only category that people have said, do you mind being called this? And they ask this often is political writer, which I find so bizarre that that that's the, the category that people think you, how do you feel? And it's again, it's never someone who isn't white, I should say, you know, um, but there's almost this understanding that that to call someone a political writer is an insult or it, I think there's there uh, is a sort of way of confusing political with polemical. Um, and the idea that political must be hammering home a point and therefore can't be nuanced um, and can't be character driven and can't be full of feeling. Um, so I, I do find it very bizarre, this sort of strange antipathy that certain critics have or think writers have um, towards a category of political writer. But no, I'm, I'm very happy to be, you know, um, I mean, there was someone who did, I haven't read it, but I know um, my mother pointed out someone did what they called a vegetarian reading of Burnt Shadows. I don't know what this is, but it sounds fascinating. I'm like, bring it on. Give me the carnivorous reading and the vegetarian reading and the <laughs> vegan readings of my work. Um, you know, it is. And the paleo reading. <laughs> the paleo reading, yeah. <laughs> plant-based reading um, that I, I don't think um, and I think it's important to say that if someone takes a lot of time and care over your work and reading you closely that does mean a lot you know you you sit and you write a book and it's you and these words on the screen and you have no idea how it's going to land in the world um, and whether it'll make any noise on landing or whether you know, 10 years later, there'll be any trace of it still. Um, so largely, I just I feel very moved, actually, when people when I know that someone has really sat down and spent time with the work when there are so many other works out there, they could be spending time with. You seem to love writing about the face, implacable and unreadable faces in particular. They form a limit case of sorts to the personal, historical or collective quests, the fiction otherwise plots. So I'm thinking about uh, the Buddha's starving face in a god in every stone, or Anika in the park vigil in home fire, a dust mask on her face. In the first instance, you talk about a stony gaze that continues beyond the viewer. And in the second, in home fire, you describe a howl deeper than the girl that emanates soundlessly from the earth. Can you talk a little bit about why this kind of description or non-description appeals to you? So, of course, Anki, this is one of those cases where, where the critic brings up something about your own work, which you hadn't seen yourself. Um, but but I mean, which is not to say you're wrong, it's just to say, you know, it was back of the brain stuff. Um, if I had to make a guess, because of course, when writers talk about their own writing and why they did a certain thing, they are guessing um, because that's what happens with back of the brain stuff. Um, when you write a novel, there is a curious. It's not curious. There, there are two things that have to happen at the same time for the novel to work. Um, and one is that the characters have to be absolutely real and believable as individuals. 
Um, they can't be a cipher, they can't be a metaphor. But at the same time, their stories should echo beyond themselves. Um, and their story should carry within them other stories um, and larger, I'm going to use the word truths about the world and how it's constructed in the human heart and the human brain and, and politics and all of that. Um, and I think with, with both those lines you mentioned, um, I think what I was doing was, those are places when I want to suggest that yes, we are, these are individual lives, and in this case, individual made up lives, but there is something deeper, there is something um, that extends beyond their lifetimes. Um, there is something mythic that goes on, um, that um, it goes back to this thing I was talking about earlier of how we are creatures of stories and we live in narratives and we keep reliving the same narratives. And that's why Antigone, a story of 2000 years ago fits so perfectly with a story of 2017 um, and this very particular moment of young British men going to join ISIS and the state responding by stripping citizenship and the families being caught in between. Um, that I want to, I think, acknowledge and allude to at all times, these deeper stories, these mythic stories, um, the fact that, that the individual Yes, is an individual, um, but is also something more. Um, and that there are always these mythic stories, these myths um, that we are drawing on for all the stories we tell. Before I let you go, one last question. It's a very, probably the most important one. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite treat while in the throes of doing all this, you know, cosmic and local stuff? What do you do or play or eat when the going gets really tough? So what I actually like to do is I love to cook, you know, um, and there's something very therapeutic of just being in the kitchen with some music on and, you know, trying something new or trying something old. Um, and, and I love to go to the homes of a very few select friends, the kind of friends whose drawing, living rooms are sort of an extension of your own apartment where you don't have to work to be in their company and where you can say, you talk at me. I'm just going <laughs> to sit, sit here and take them in. Um, and I, I love to walk through London. No, so so give me a day where I can go and walk over to a friend's house and sit and have a cup of tea with them and then go home and cook myself a meal. And if it, it's bad, no one but me needs to know it. And, and that for me is a, is a very happy day at the end of a writing day where you're not using too much energy, but you're just, there's something kind of restorative about all of that. What is the last thing you cooked? Are you what proud of the, or not proud of either one? <laughs> oh God, what was the last thing I, I cooked? I, I, today, I'm, today I'm, a, I'm not a big salad person, but I'm going to attempt a salad, which I haven't attempted before, which is with peach. Hmm. Peach and spinach leaves and walnuts ah. and goat cheese. What do we think of this? Um, my, my signature, if I have a signature dish, it's my biryani, which I'm very proud of. Perfect. Uh, I Anki think just had the, of that. Anki <laughs> just had this look like, when am I getting your biryani? I saw that look, Anki. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Kamila. Thank you so much, Arti. And thank you to Novel Dialogue for this oh, yeah. wonderful... Yeah, and I have to minutes we've spent. continue the um, 
the Parade of Thanks by thanking Ranji Khanna and Chris Chia at the Franklin Humanities Institute for making this episode happen. And, and as always, I am grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship and acknowledge the support of Duke and Brandeis. Nye Kim is our production designer, Claire Ogden, our sound engineer, Hannah Jorgensen is our transcript editor, and James Draney, our blog editor. Uh, past and upcoming episodes include Tara Menon speaking to Sigrid Nunez and Colleen Lai in conversation with Viet Tan Win. So from all of us and Novel Dialogue, thank you for listening. And if you liked what you heard, uh, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.